This is true news, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. I'm Rick Wiles. Well, who will blink first, NATO or Russia? The stakes got bigger today when Russia's Gazprom announced it will not reopen the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline tomorrow. Meanwhile, the G7 announced it would impose a global price cap on Russian oil. Dmitry Medvedev responded with a threat to cut off the sale of all Russian oil to Europe. The losers in this ridiculous game will be Europeans who will shiver in cold homes this winter and lose their jobs when offices and manufacturing facilities are forced to close. Let's start with a Bloomberg News report about Gazprom's decision. Here's the headline, Gazprom won't reopen gas pipeline in 11th hour blow to Europe. Doc, this uh, story broke this afternoon, and when, when I saw it, I knew, um, I knew that the topic of today's true news was going to once again be focused on um, energy, uh, Europe, NATO, and a showdown between the West and Russia. Uh, it, it completely changed our focus here today because this is a huge uh, announcement. Uh, it's, it's not un, unexpected. Right. Um, I would have been totally surprised if, if Russia would have turned the gas back on. Uh, but now that's, this is a 100% cutoff of LNG liquefied natural gas from Russia to Europe. And if if the... Uh, if the West does not negotiate a settlement with Russia regarding Ukraine uh, in the coming weeks, in you know, a month or two, Europe is going to be in a miserable condition this winter. Let's take a look at what... Uh, what Bloomberg reported today. So Russia's Gazprom PJSC said its key gas pipeline to Europe can't reopen as planned on Saturday as a new technical issue has been discovered. And that's a massive blow to Europe, which is scrambling to fill up its gas storage ahead of winter, which has been trying to guess Moscow's next steps in the energy war for weeks. Uh, it says that a leak of oil was detected at a gas turbine that helps pump gas into the link. Gazprom now needs to fix the problem before the flows can restart, said in a statement late on Friday. There's no indication how long that may take. Um, maybe there was a leak, and, or maybe they made a leak, or whatever. But the pipeline is shut down indefinitely at this point. That's now, it was only operating at 20% capacity anyway, but this is really the final, uh, the nail in the coffin, so to speak, maybe even literally for some people in Europe this so, morning. Doc, we got a little bit more information from the Russian news on Navasti. Uh, their story, uh, Gazprom completely stopped Nord Stream due to turbine malfunction. And they, they go in, into a little bit more detail about this uh, mysterious malfunction that they found today. Right, so Gazprom received a warning from Ross Steknadzor about a malfunction of the only working engine for the Nord Stream gas pipeline. Uh, the pipeline has been completely stopped until the comments or the checklist has been eliminated, the company said. It'll be clarified that during joint maintenance with Siemens representatives at the Trent 60 gas compressor unit of the Portavia compressor station, an oil leak was detected. It was found on equipment that is part of the engine. Now, a warning from uh, Rostick Mazur was uh, received that the detected damage does not allow for the safe operation of the gas turbine engine. It is necessary to take appropriate measures and suspend the operation of the Trent 60 gas compressor until, excuse me, unit due to the identified gross violations, the statement says. And uh, as we mentioned before, this isn't really unexpected, Rick. Uh, we, uh, you know, we kind of figured that they would come up with, you know, any reason to shut it off. Mm -hmm. At least they give a reason. They, you know, I'm surprised the Russians haven't shut it off already just because. Yeah. And so, but now, I, you know, it's funny how the Russians and the Chinese both, they follow the rules and regulations. Uh, you know, the mm -hmm. West, we just bulldoze our mm -hmm. way through. But the Russians and the Chinese, they use the rules and regulations as means uh, to fulfill their ends. Yes. So, 
even if there was no leak, they still are following the rules. Right. They're telling you there was a leak. Therefore, they have to follow the rules. Right. You don't want the thing to blow up, do you? Then you'll never have gas. That's right. So now, this this announcement came um, a few hours after the G7 announced that. Uh, the G7 countries are going to impose a global price cap on Russian oil. This is Financial Times in London. And so this price cap, we talked about it uh, last month. They, they, want to, uh, they, want to, uh, they want to cap Russian crude oil at, I believe, $40 a barrel. Which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The Russians, uh, they'll just be breaking even in the production and sale of oil. Um, They're not going to make any money. And that's the purpose of it. Right. Because the the Western leaders said, if we we can force Russia to sell the oil at $40, they won't have any money for the war in Ukraine. Now, that's the reasoning. That's, that's the strategy. So you have to be able to... I mean, Russia obviously is not, is not going to say, okay, we're going to lower the price of our oil down to $40. We'll, we'll obey your rule. They're not going to do that. What, what the West is seeking to do is to use uh, manipulative pressures like insurance companies. So if, if a... If a shipping company that's moving oil is moving Russian oil and that oil in on and those tankers on the sea were not priced at forty dollars, then the insurance policy would be void. Right. That's the kind of game that they're playing. And you gotta get everybody to go along with this. And and the West is uh, betting that the fear of Western sanctions on corporations Okay, we'll close your bank account. We'll seize your assets. You, you have buildings in the United States or you Great have Britain. Ships you have water. ships. We'll seize your ships. That's what they're hoping to do. They use that fear. You know, there's, there's, a, there's coming a day, and I think we're already there for a lot of the world, where people are just sick and tired of it. They're just sick and tired of the Western globalists threatening to do something if you don't follow their demands. They're just tired of it because it, it, these are the tactics of, of bullies. They're like playground bullies. They're taking everybody's lunch money. There comes, that's, that's a, comes a time where, guess what? The kids are going to gang up. They're going to gang up and beat up the bully at some point. So uh, this is the strategy, and that's why this announcement came out today from the Russians. Well, I think the Russians were going to announce it anyhow. But the timing, G7 first announced right. they're going to do a price cap. Well, they, they expected that. They expected to happen also. So here's what the Financial Times says about the uh, scheme. Well, the G7 countries are poised to back a price cap on purchases of Russian oil in an attempt to limit the Kremlin's earnings from exports and ability to fund its war in Ukraine. Finance ministers from the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, Italy, Canada, and Japan will formally give their political support for such a move at a virtual meeting on Friday afternoon, according to five officials briefed on the talks. However, the level of the price cap is still under discussion, they said. Now, the capping mechanism would be implemented at the same time as the EU's embargoes on Russian oil imports, two of the officials said. The measure would take effect on December 5th for crude and February 5th for refined products. So we're still months away on this. The plan hinges on an incentive uh, system whereby importers seeking insurance, cover, and shipping services from companies based in uh, G7 and EU countries to transport Russian oil would need to observe the price ceiling. So meanwhile, shipping insurers have privately expressed concern at the use of insurance as the enforcement mechanism for the cap, given underwriters do not typically track the trading price of a cargo. Executives and officials have acknowledged that the fear of breaching the terms of the cap could mean insurers overcompensate and pull coverage from a wider range of vessels. So, as Rick was stating before, they're actually using uh, the insurance companies that ships have for the loss of, mm-hmm. you know, their cargo and everything. And now they're using... And just like, they're weaponizing they're, them. Yes, they're weaponizing the insurance companies. 
and using that as the enforcers. Yes. So uh, where they're typically not. They're just saying, we're just here to ensure things. Yes. So, so now they become agents of the state. Right. Which this is, is fascism. This is fascism. So, so it's, that's involuntary cooperation. Some corporations like, like YouTube and Facebook, they love to cooperate with the fascist state. Other corporations like these insurance companies don't want to be enforcers, but they will be involuntary cooperators with the state right. because they, the fear of losing uh, their insurance license or, or uh, shipping companies losing their fleets. So uh, we'll show you what uh, Mr. Medvedev, the former president of Russia and former prime minister, uh, this uh, Russia's Novosti Medvedev warned about the consequences of the introduction of a ceiling on gas prices. So Dmitry Medvedev, uh, deputy head of the Russian Security Council, believes that if the EU introduces a ceiling on gas prices from the Russian Federation, there will simply be no Russian gas in Europe. Uh, the time has come for the EU to impose a price ceiling on pipeline gas from Russia, said uh, Ursula van der Leyen. It'll be like, well, there'll be simply no Russian gas in Europe, Medvedev wrote on his Telegram channel. And also from uh, Reuters here, Russia says it will stop selling oil to countries that set those price caps. The Kremlin said on Friday that Russia would stop selling oil to countries that impose price caps on Russia's energy resources, caps that Moscow said would lead to significant destabilization of the global oil market. Companies that impose a price cap will not be among the recipients of Russian oil, Dmitry Peskov told reporters in a conference call endorsing uh, comments made on Thursday, Thursday by Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak. We simply will not cooperate with them on non-market principles, Peskov said. TASS is uh, 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 the outlet in Europe, uh, went on more with uh, Prime Minister Alexander Novak's comments uh, saying Russia will stop supplying oil to countries. Uh, they'll stop the supply of oil and oil products to countries that decide to limit the cost of oil from the Russian Federation. And this was announced to journalists by Deputy Prime Minister of the Russian Federation, Alexander Novak. As for price limits, if they impose a price limit, then we are uh, just for such companies or countries that impose restrictions, we will not supply them with oil and oil products since we will not work on non-market conditions, he stressed. Now, at the same time, Mr. Novak called the proposals to impose restrictions on the price of Russian oil complete absurdity. This is interference in the market mechanisms of such an important industry as the oil industry, which is the most important in terms of ensuring the energy security of the whole world. And such attempts will only lead to destabilization of the oil industry, uh, the oil market, he added, stressing that, first of all, for the measure uh, will be paid by those European and American consumers who are currently pay high, paying high energy prices. It will completely destroy the market, the vice premier emphasized. Uh, this is so insane, Doc, um, because even with all the stuff going on, with the war in the West and the sanctions, Europe is still buying Russian oil. Yes. They depend on Russian oil. They didn't put sanctions on Russian oil. No. They nor, put, on, nor on Russian gas. That's right. They didn't, they didn't put sanctions on it because they need it. So nothing has gone according to their plan. And so they're now saying... We're going, to, we're going to put a price cap on the price of the oil that Russia sells to us because we really need it, but they're getting money from us to finance the war, so we're going to cut their knees off, and they're going to like it. They're going to do it. They're, going to, they're just going to submit to us. And the Russians are saying, we just cut off your gas today. Now, now how much are you going to pay? Yes, <laughs> but now we're going to cut off your oil. That's where this is going. The Russians are going to stop shipping the oil to Europe. Today they cut off the LNG. Right. What's coming next, Doc, is they're going to cut off the oil. I'm going to jump out a sequence uh, for our guys in the control room. Uh, I want you to jump over to number 27. 
And this is uh, who imports Russian oil. Uh, look at this. Germany is number one. The Netherlands, Poland, Finland, Greece, Belgium, Italy, Lithuania, Spain, France. But at the top is Germany. Right. And, and right behind it is Netherlands. Right. Now, we have another still here that shows who is most dependent. And that's based upon the population and their usage and everything. So the uh, countries that are most vulnerable when it comes to Russian crude oil, look at this. You've got some of the uh, smaller countries in Lithuania, the, uh, which has already uh, aggravated Russia. Right. Finland, which has been, you know, joining NATO, joining NATO. You have Slovakia, Poland, Hungary, Estonia, Germany, still within a few uh, leaders of of the top there, Greece and Norway. So there's so you have both Germany, that is the number one consumer. But the the ones that are the weakest when it comes to the leverage against them are countries like Lithuania and Slovakia, uh, Poland and Hungary and Estonia. Uh, some of the, I, I wouldn't call them weaker members of NATO, but they're vulnerable yes. uh, members of NATO. So what the Russians said today is any country that participates in this scheme to cap their oil prices, whether it's $40 or 45 or 50 it doesn't matter to the Russians. What the Russians said today is if you sign on to this NATO scheme, this EU scheme, we're not selling oil to you. Right. That's it. You're not getting more oil. We're only going to sell oil to friendly countries. Who blames them? The, the Russians are, I mean, they, got, they have to be sitting in the Kremlin just amazed at the stupidity, the stupidity <laughs> of the West. It's like, it's like the Western countries are in a war with Russia. And they're reporting that, they're, that they got all these casualties. They're getting shot, they're, and they got casualties. Right. And somebody says, turn your gun around. and <laughs> Shoot the enemy. You, you got your rifle pointed at yourself. You know, they're shooting themselves. And they think that they're in a war with Russia. And, but they're shooting themselves. The Russians are not suffering. None. None of the stuff that the West has done to them. Is, is hurting Russia. We read the other day, Russia is swimming in cash. Right. The Russians just, they suck it up. They just say, hey, you, you're going to put pressure on us? We're going to survive. Right. In fact, Mr. Putin has said that to, to that extent. We've, you've put us through the grinder on this before. We've learned how yes. to deal with this. Yes. We're going to come through this as well. And, but so. there will be a breaking point someday when, and what gets broken is the Western machine, the, 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 the mechanism that they use to exert pressure. And it's the financial system, Doc. Right. It's the financial system. At some point, there will be enough countries that will say, we see how the globalists are running things. They're using the banking system. They're using uh, financial regulations, economic sanctions. And we're going to get out from under this. And how do they do that? They create a new financial system, a new banking system, a new monetary system. Yeah, Russia is finding ways and new partnerships even right now. They've established a new, you know, currency exchange with mm-hmm. India for oil. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to see more and more of these things happening all over the world. It, you know, the market's market. The market is going to find a way. What yes. Europe and the West are doing, they're manipulating the markets in a like in a war. But the rest of the world's not at war with Russia. That's right. You mentioned India. And I, uh, I'm certain I read that early this morning that the Indian military is participating in that war drill with Russia and China. Yes, I, I saw another uh, headline related to that, big. too. That is a big development. You have China, India, and Russia now in alliance, in a military alliance. I mean, the world is changing. Rapidly. The power base is changing. Everything is moving towards the east at this point. It is a 500-year cycle shift. 
The West has been in control of the world for 500 years. It's now shifting to the East. It will be in the East for 500 years if Christ doesn't come back. I want to get back to this. Uh, uh, the oil. So did we show number 28? I wanted to show you uh, the country. Yeah, we did. We looked at that. Okay. So let's get back to. Uh, One of those uh, countries that was listed before the G7 mm-hmm. was Japan. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, here about a month or so back, we reported on uh, the uh, partnership that Russia had with Japan on gas and oil was starting to crumble. Yeah, it was called Sakhalin. So, um, so. uh, there's a, a LNG gas, uh, you know, production facility in Russia, and Japan was a, a Japanese companies were part owners mm-hmm. with it. Well, Putin nationalized. Well, he, I want to say he nationalized. Well, kind of. Um, what, what he said. It wasn't that the Russian government took it over. Putin said, um, the corporations that are running this thing, mm-hmm. they're out. They're out. We're dissolving it. There has to be a new corporation formed. And so it wasn't that the Russian government took it over. It was simply they said, we're not going to allow the present owners to remain well right. one that was shell wasn't it yeah shell was one of the big right. they owned about uh i think about 29 percent of the facility and back in july so uh mr medvedev gave the warning that if japan and this is from japan times you want to put that back up mr medvedev said if japan ever chose to support an oil price cap uh, they would lose rights to you know access to that energy so that's, then, Ju- that's July 6th. Right. So where uh, are we today? Well, we're at, we're at September 2nd. But back on August 31st, Russia okays Japan firm's investment in Sakhalin 2 energy project. And that's, and that's a Kyoto News, and that's Mitsubishi. Right. So Mitsubishi was allowed to remain in the corporation, the new corporation. Right. And then we come up to today. This is Kyoto News Today. Oil from Sockland 2 project not subject to price cap. Says who? Japan. Yeah, Japan is saying that, not Russia. But Japan is part of the G7. That's right. And so if they decide to participate in the price cap, they lose access to their uh, access to Russian Well, the energy. price cap scheme is already falling apart because Japan's in the G7. Right. And Japan's saying, oh, okay, we'll go along with this price cap, but not not the gas over here at Sakhalin. All right. We're not going to, we're not going to, that's different. So we're going to participate, but not really. Not really. Not if it affects us. <laughs> so I got it now. It's so. falling apart on the first day. Did you just see the sequence of how Medvedev warned them? And then they gave Mitsubishi uh, permission to be an owner. And, and now here we are today, Japan saying, um, Sakhalin gas is not part of this price gap scheme. So the West, once again, they can't, they can't hold their forces together to enforce their schemes. And they're just going to plow on. Right. And like the, the German uh, government uh, cabinet official, uh, was Brobach or whatever? Bierbach. Yeah, so. Bierbach. We don't care if our people suffer. And they don't care. They don't care. If, if they protest in the streets, we don't care. We have an agenda. We're going to hurt Russia. By hurting our own people. By hurting people. our own people. So crazy. Who needs these people as government officials? There's wow. going to be an uprising. There's, it, it's coming, Doc. When, when the peasants get fed up with this stuff, and I'm talking about here in the United States, with Biden last night, calling half the country domestic terrorists. You've got you know, Trudeau yesterday said that um, the reason that people are upset with politicians is because of mental illness caused by global warming. Yeah, it's because of the weather. No, global warming. Yeah. I mean, global climate change right. is causing mental illness. That's why people are upset at the politicians. When this dam breaks, it's going to be global. Yeah, it's not going to be an isolated event. It'll be Europe. It'll be uh, it'll be China. primarily the West. Yes. And so, but yes. it'll have repercussions. It may be China world, too. So it may be China too. The people refusing to pay their mortgages in China. 
Now, if you've been watching True News over the past month or so, we've walked you through this, uh, the Sockland 2 uh, project and everything and told you how Russia forced Shell out, right? So now look at this headline from Bloomberg, okay? Shell walks away from major Russian LNG project with nothing. Oh, they just walked away, Rick. They said, you know what, uh, we're out. No, you got kicked out. That's what happened. See that V power? That's Vladimir power. <laughs> Shell PLC will walk away from Russia's Sakhalin 2 liquefied natural gas project with nothing after President Putin transferred the major facility to a new operating company. The London-based firm's decision is the latest indication that Putin won't allow international energy companies to realize big financial gains as they exit Russia over the invasion of Ukraine. The president has also issued a decree that blocks ExxonMobil from selling its interest in the Sockland One oil project, at least until the end of the year. Now, Shell had already written off $1.6 billion of value of its 27.5% stake in the Sockland Two project earlier this year. The company has a contract to receive LNG cargoes from this facility and is currently assessing options in line with applicable legal requirements and agreements as the venture is transferred to the new operator, according to its website. So I just thought it was humorous how Bloomberg said they're, they're walking away, Rick. From, from $1.6 billion. Right. So this is what this um, globalist adventure is causing, costing people. Right. So for Shell, it cost them $1.6 billion. There was no, Russia didn't plan to kick them out before right. this mess started. Russia was happy to have Shell involved in that Sakhalin project. But when the West started seizing Russian assets, yes. assets that belonged to Russian citizens, like houses and boats and aircraft, then the Russians just turned it around and said, well, what's here that we can seize? And what they did is they just took, they just took $1.6 billion of investment from Shell. Let's go back home and cry. We don't care. Your country's doing it to us. No, you go home and cry about it. But it didn't have to happen. No. This is a colossal mess caused by the globalists who gave us COVID. The same people who, who messed up the world with COVID are with the COVID. same ones pushing this war with Ukraine and all this nonsense going on with Russia. None of this has to happen. Yeah. And so it's still being orchestrated. Uh, you know, the Saudis are our friends, right? Isn't that what we're told? Uh, that Saudi is a great partner, military partner of the U.S. and everything. Uh, and all our friends in the Middle East, they, they just love America, mm -hmm. right? Well, here's an article from oilprice.com. Oil prices climb on expectations of an OPEC production cut. Why are they cutting production? Because they want to see prices go up. They make more money on less fuel. So, Doc, this uh, OPEC meeting is will be held Monday, September 5. Uh, it's, it will be a uh, conference call, kind of like a Zoom call OPEC meeting. Right. They're, they're, I, I was trying to find the city that they were meeting in, and then I realized how they, they don't meet in cities anymore. They're just doing virtual meetings. So this is a virtual OPEC conference on Monday. OPEC is expected to announce a cut in the global production of oil. What do you think is going to happen to oil prices? Skyrocket. So. And when the Russians cut off oil to Europe, do you, know, do you know what this is going to do to the markets? It's going to just cause them to go into the stratosphere. And OPEC sees this. OPEC knows this. This is an opportunity. They're preparing. They're going to cash in on this. Yes. In a big, big way. So Russia, Russia is a member of OPEC. Yeah. They're an oil-producing country. So you know, Putin is sending the message, sure, raise the prices. Yes. Uh, Europe and the United States, they're saying that they're going to cut our price. No, we're going to... We're going to hike the price. Right. And all that ends up doing is it transfers wealth out of the West yes. into 
Russia, into uh, the Middle East, into all the OPEC countries that are around. So from uh, that oil price article, we have this, trader expectations that OPEC and its partners will approve production cuts at next week's meeting added upward pressure to oil prices early on Friday morning, letting benchmarks recoup much of the losses incurred earlier in the week. Now, the idea of production cuts by OPEC uh, plus producers was floated last month by Saudi Arabia's energy minister, Abdulaziz bin Salman, who said the paper market for oil had become disconnected from the physical market, implying prices had fallen too low for the actual supply situation. And so, um, as we were saying before, this is an opportunity for OPEC to really cash in on what's sure to be uh, an incredible winter for Europe. And it, once again, it's going to be that transfer of wealth and that transfer of power out of the West into the hands of those who control our energy supply. And it doesn't have to be that way at all. Doc, I've got an update on uh, European factories that are closing down. This is number 29 and also from oilprice.com. European stainless steel mills are closing due to energy crisis. Right. So uh, from this article, and you don't realize how much how many items are made with stainless steel. I mean, from uh, components to kitchen supplies to silverware, of course, you know, uh, but so much is made with stainless steel. And stainless steel prices continue to struggle. I, I didn't know they were before as we approached the final quarter of the year. Meanwhile, nickel prices float just above, uh, above their 2021 average, closing in August at 21,000 per metric ton. Both indices seem to indicate an overly cautious marketplace with buyers and sellers seemingly waiting to see what the other will do. This sort of commodity standoff is less than ideal. Metal Miner has recommended that buyers of flat-rolled stainless steel stainless expect lower transaction prices as we move into autumn. After all, alloy surcharges are low, low and competition between service centers is higher. In fact, many U.S. flat-rolled mills have no customers on allocation thanks to imports affecting overall supply. Now, what would happen if the stainless steel market suddenly lost millions of tons of production? Well, according to oilprice.com, we won't have to wait long to find out the answer because it's already happening. As August ended, more and more reports came in detailing European stainless steel producers having to scale back or shut down production altogether. Of course, Europe faces a catastrophic energy crisis, and while many economists remain focused on the coming winter, uh, Mr. Putin's retaliatory gas cutoff has done plenty of damage already. So far, around 3 million tons of Europe's stainless steel capacity is at risk, and with energy costs surging, many plants simply can't afford to keep the lights on, so to speak. So this is having its impact. Every, every day we're reading another story like this, where another segment of uh, various markets either gets scaled back significantly or mm -hmm. shut down. And one, you, you tip one domino here, and it makes all the other dominoes start to fall. So how many things uh, do you need to purchase that are made with stainless steel? It's either going to be extremely expensive or non-existent. Right later this year. That's, that's the reality of what's coming. And that affects the production uh, not only of new products, but also parts for products, mm -hmm. too. Replacement parts. And there's so much that's out there, you really don't realize. Uh, you know, I was sitting at my desk today when I read the story. I was thinking to myself, how many things in my home have stainless steel? Mm -hmm. And or how many things in my car, let's say, or whatever. Um, uh, you know, you think of all the various things yes. that you use, and you don't really think. You know, it's so common to us, we all take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And yet, we're seeing skyrocketing prices taking place in this uh, particular area, and we're going to see it go even higher now because production is being shut down. So, um, it would be wise, I would think, Doc. Uh, for us, all of us, uh, our audience, uh, to look at things in our home, uh, things in our businesses. If you right. own a business or things in your household, what do you have uh, that has stainless steel that is starting to, it's starting to show its age? And you, you know at some point you need to replace it. 
you might want to think about replacing it soon. Right. It could be years. We, we literally could see years go by until new products are made. This disruption has the potential of, of sending the world into a five to ten year contraction where we're experiencing shortages uh, or non-existent products, super high prices, inflation uh, for the next decade. Right. Because even if, even if everything was fixed today, even if it was all fixed today and there were, you could wave a magic wand and fix it all today, the uh, repercussions that are already in place are going to create pain now for the, at least for the next year. But these things are cumulative. They're going to yes. build up on one another. Uh, you, you have an, uh, a, a nickel plant that shuts down here. You have a zinc plant that shuts down here, a stainless steel plant that shuts down here, a fertilizer plant that shuts down here. Individually, they don't impact the market as mm -hmm. a whole, but cumulatively, yes. they create a cascade effect across the entire market. Well, it think won't about, impact just Europe, but here in the U.S. Uh, think about uh, dominoes all the way across this table. So if they don't fix, if they don't stop this war and get some sanity back into the world, then all the dominoes are going to fall. But if they solve the war, if they... If they came to a settlement in the next 60 days, half the dominoes have already fallen. Right. You have to deal with this. This isn't going to go away. There's been so much damage done since the beginning of the year because of the stupid war that these half of the dominoes are already down. These factories are already closed. Things have already been damaged. And it's, it, we're, that means you're going to go into throughout 2023 dealing with the the repercussions of what was done in early 22 right because of the foolish foreign policy of the globalists who run the west the next one is uh oh, well france france is uh like you know we we might want to rethink shutting down our nuclear power reactors <laughs> yes so uh, France now, which has for a long time been seeking to shut down all their nuclear power throughout the country, now when things are looking kind of tough, they're set to restart all nuclear reactors by winter. Uh, France relies on nuclear energy for about 67% of its electricity currently, more than any other country in the world. And they were slowly scaling back all of their, uh, uh, over a period of time, all their reactors. They had a total of uh, 50 nuclear power plants uh, in the country, mm -hmm. and they had already scaled back uh, to 30, uh, 30, I recall, from uh, the earlier this week. The French were the leaders in nuclear power. Right. This is the, the radical green environmental agenda is why they were doing this. And they made foolish decisions, and now it's coming back to bite them. But even up until last week, they were still committed to keeping those plants closed. Uh, I mean, that's where they were at. Where's Greta? Yeah. What, what did they do with her? Did she go back to school? I don't know. She's dropped off the map completely. Did, did she lose her contract? She grew up. Did she lose her up. contract? She wasn't a cute kid anymore, and so... Um, Interesting story. This is out of the Denver Gazette. Folks, get ready for this. Xcel Energy remotely adjusts thermostats during power emergency. This is in Denver. Yes. This is uh, the uh, power company out in Colorado where uh, they had a, an increase uh, in uh, uh, energy usage. And so what the uh, Xcel uh, power company did is they remotely reset thermostats all across the state. Doc, uh, in this case, it wasn't cold weather. It was hot weather. Right. Denver was hit with a heat wave. And so XL Energy, the utility company, took control of the smart meters. Yes. And adjusted the uh, room temperature of houses and office buildings. Right. Now, these were people that had volunteered before to have 
you know, energy monitoring. Mm -hmm. So you might have gotten a letter from your power company here over the past year or so saying, hey, would you like to sign up for energy monitoring? We can help save you cost on your electric bill, you know, smooth out your monthly payments and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. The trade-off was that they get to monitor your usage. But they not only get to monitor your usage, if you look at the fine print, they get to adjust your usage depending on the demand across the entire grid. A lot of power companies are doing this, but now this is the first time we're actually seeing it put in a broad use. It's, It's no longer an experiment. They can hack into your thermostat and change the temperature in your house. 12, 15 years ago when the smart meters were being installed, on this program, we warned that these smart meters were going to give um, the state the ability to to control the temperature in your house. Mm-hmm. Of course, I got smeared. Crazy conspiracy theorists. Right. They're never going to do anything like that. Rick Wiles is making wild accusations again. Well, here we are. Yes. Guess what they can do? They can take control of your thermostat remotely. There were people in Denver who said that Excel moved their temperature up to 88 degrees in their home. Right. How'd you like to be in a home with children with 88 degrees and a heat wave? What's, what's the point of having an air conditioning unit? Right. And these smart meters, Rick, are not only being applied within the energy industry. Most of the new water meters that are being installed mm-hmm. around the country now are smart water meters, which means they also will control the flow of water to your home, depending on use. Connect this with a social credit score. Right. And with uh, the Bidenistas saying, uh, well, if if you are a domestic terrorist, you voted Republican, we're going to... Like last night. We're going to throttle back the amount of electricity and water that your home can, can receive until you change your ways. Until you vote for the commiecrats. Until you stop attending Trump rallies. You're going, to, you're going to receive less electricity than your neighbor who votes for commiecrats. You don't think they wouldn't do it? Oh, I think they would. They've got the power to do it. I mean, they, they can throttle you online. Right. Right? They can throttle Zuckerberg, your, Zuckerberg admitted. admitted. They do it now. So can they throttle your electricity? They sure can. Can they throttle your water? Yes, you bet. Are they throttling your gas now? Yes, they already are. So, uh, But watch these stories uh, because a lot of power companies around the country are already offering energy monitoring. I opted out of mine. Uh, Here in Florida they have it. They do a big push on it. I opted out of it. And so um, I never open my mail. It's probably it's probably somewhere in my home Very office in there. Deep, yeah. so. uh, this next story is from an, um, a Saudi Arabian newspaper in London. Yeah, I want to ask you about this story today, Rick. This is interesting. Uh, Russia calls on Iran to evacuate military positions in central and western Syria. Um, so uh, read a quote here, and I'd like to get your take on this, Rick. Uh, Russia has demanded Iranian militia withdrawal from military positions west of Syria's Hamad province, as well as from positions in central western Syria, Syrian regime sources revealed. The order stems from a desire to avoid the militias being targeted by Israeli raids, which have stepped up in recent days. Regime loyalists have accused Russia of being a weak ally over its inability to break its silence on repeated Israeli violations of Syrian sovereignty. So Russia's demand was made during a meeting that included three Russian officers and the Iranian counterparts at the Hamal military airport in central Syria on Wednesday. Russian officers informed the Iranian side of the need to evacuate Iranian military headquarters near the site of Regiment 49, which belongs to the Syrian regime forces. Uh, the Regiment 49 site is one of the most important military sites in western Hamal because it houses long-range S-200 missiles and other Russian-made military equipment. Now, the Russian officers also demanded that the Iranians evacuate a second Iranian military site in the Hamadiyya area, south of Tardis, governing on the Syrian coast. The order to evacuate the military locations came so that Iranian militias could avoid Israeli airstrikes, confirming the source. 
Moreover, the Russians are seeking to maintain stability in western Syria and to deprive Israelis of excuses or pretexts to continue uh, the bombing of this important part of the country. So uh, my question for you here, what's, what's happening here? Um, I, I know what the article itself says, mm-hmm. but I've, I can't recall a time where Russia has ever said to Iran, you need to get out of Syria at right. this point, or this area of Syria at this point. Is something about to happen in Syria? Am I reading too much into this? No, I, I think what you what the story is is that the Russians want to prevent something from happening in Syria. So let's start with the basics. Um, you know, we go back to 2011, Obama and Hillary Clinton, right, uh, on behalf of the globalists, the same people that have created this war in Ukraine, the right. very same people, they created ISIS to take down the Syrian government. And so ISIS is a, an invention of the West. And um, so you know, only God knows how many Syrians have died. Millions have been displaced. They've left their homes, right. left the country. The country's been devastated. Well, the, the Iranians moved in. They moved into the vacuum. Um, and the Russians have been in Syria for a long time because of the military base at Tartus, the right. naval base. It's the only warm water port that Russia has. Yes. They have to protect Tartus. It's a major Russian naval base. So Russia and Syria have had warm relations for decades, a long, long time. The Iranians have not been in Syria except since this war started back in 2011. So um, the Israelis have been bombing Syria mainly to attack the Iranians that are in Syria. And what that article said is that some some Syrians uh, are seeing the Russians as weak allies, meaning the Russians have not shot down the Israeli warplanes. So Russia's trying to avoid a, a confrontation at that point? With Israel, yes. Right. They don't really, the Russians are not looking to get into a war with Israel. last thing they need is a shooting match with Israel because of Israel bombing Iranian military sites in Syria. So if this article is correct, the Russians this week got fed up Remember just days ago, the Israelis bombed the Aleppo airport? Yes. See, they're getting too close to the Russian military installations. The Israelis have not bombed the Israeli military installations. They know better. If they kill a Russian soldier, the Russians are going to retaliate. They know that. So the Israelis have not bombed Russian military sites in Syria, and Russia has not shot down Israeli warplanes. So there's been kind of a gentleman's agreement between the two countries. Right. But the Iranians are making it difficult difficult for everybody. So this week, if that article is correct, the Russian military got fed up, went over to the Iranian military sites in Syria and said, it's time to pack up and go. Get out. Um, it's actually a good thing. Well, I would it's agree, but will will the Iranians follow through on that? Well, do the Iranians want to get in a fight with Russia? No, that's a good point. Who's the bigger Who's the bigger player here? Um, I, I think they're going to pull back. They have to, um, because uh, at, at some point, Russian installations and Russian troops are going to get hit. Because the Iranians are getting too close to their their facilities in Syria. And so the Russians simply said, it's time for you to go home. Get out of here. Um, I I wish the Iranians would leave Syria. I wish everybody would leave Syria and just leave Syria there. Yes. I want the Israelis out. I want the United States out. I want Russia out. I want the Iranians out. Everybody get out of Syria. Just let the Syrian people alone. Uh, but you got all these countries with their military operations in Syria and Syria, including the U.S., including the U.S. We have we have military bases in Syria against the will of the people of Syria. 
you imagine you're a Syrian citizen and you have to drive down a road and say, that's a U.S. military base. They got troops in our country. Right. And you can't do anything about it. But anyhow, all these countries just need to pack up and go. So I think what's happened this week is the Russians finally said, we've got more than enough trouble right now in Ukraine. And how did we get to Ukraine? Because the Russians intervened in the U.S.-French-NATO war in Syria. The Russians intervened and when Obama was in the White yes. House and said, you're not going to invade. If you do, we're going to defend Syria. And immediately, Obama and the whole NATO gang, they moved the theater of war to Ukraine. Right. And then McCain went to Ukraine, and they had the revolution. People forget about all this stuff. How this has been a trail of operations. So the Russians don't need another battlefield. They don't need a war to break out in Syria. Remember a couple of weeks ago, there was a Russian official, it was a military official, and he said that the West had a plan to fight Iran on Syrian soil. Yes, remember that article. There you go. There you go. And the Russians, the Russians have, remember that article too, right? The Russians, the Russians have figured out that the plan is for Israel and the United States to fight Iran in Syria. And the Russians this week have said, you know what, we, we don't need this here. We, we have enough problems. We don't need to be fighting uh, the Americans and the Israelis and everybody else over here in Syria. And the, the trouble here is Iran. It's time for you to go. Uh, but the Russians aren't going to leave Syria. They're going to stay. Because if they don't stay, Iran's going to come back in and fill the vacuum back up, right? Uh, the United States will fill up the vacuum. Right. And Israel. Israel wants to conquer Syria. It's greater, that's greater Israel. Yes. Uh, so the Russians aren't going to leave, and the Russians are in, are welcomed by the Syrians. They're the, in fact, they're the only country there that that's is officially invited by the Syrian government. Um, so anyhow, it's it's an interesting development that uh, Russia has told the Iranians to pack up and go. One more story before we pack up and go. By the way, there won't be a true news Monday because Monday is Labor Day. Uh, uh, it's a federal holiday in the United States, so if you are watching in other parts of the world, you wonder where we're at on Monday, it's a holiday here in the United States on Monday, so we're going to take the day off. Um, this last story is from the, the uh, National Pulse, and it says, uh, the U.S. Senate's former sergeant-at-arms now lobbies for a company controlled by the Chinese military. Yeah, Rick, this is a fascinating story here. Former U.S. Senate Sergeant-at-Arms, one of the most security-conscious roles in the U.S. government, is now lobbying for the Chinese Communist Party-owned company, Hikvision, which has ties to the regime's military, the National Poll has revealed. Hikvision is a state-owned manufacturer and supplier of video surveillance equipment that has been identified by the U.S. Department of Defense as a Chinese Communist Party military proxy. Now, the state-owned company has been accused of supplying the uh, CCP with the necessary technological infrastructure to carry out a genocide of the Uyghur people in uh, Xinjiang province. Despite these concerning ties, Andrew uh, Wilson, Drew Wilson, also a former chief of staff to ex-Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid, is lobbying on behalf of the company. In 2014, Willison was promoted by Reed to serve as the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms after a stint as the Deputy Sergeant-at-Arms. Rick, this isn't an isolated uh, incident. I mean, it's, Pulse is picking this up right now. But so many politicians that have served in the past. You, know, you get former, go, uh, uh, former Louisiana U.S. Senator Republican Vitter. Yes. Um, he, he's working for uh, lobbying for Hickvision. Wasn't Hickvision the company that was uh, 
Is that the company that was offering free drones to U.S. police I, agencies? I believe it is, and so let me double during, check. On during that. COVID, as a way to find people who were coughing on the ground. I believe you're right. And so, and we we had local police departments uh, gladly receiving Chinese drones, and I, I think it was Hikvision. Uh, but anyhow, Hikvision. Yes, they, it was them. Was it? So, yes. Yeah. So, but Hikvision is. Uh, you know, it's a communist-controlled corporation, and um, you've got you've got high-level former U.S. government officials working for them in the USA. Again, it's it's the evidence of how deeply China has penetrated and infiltrated the United States of America. That these people, these Americans, they don't have any their conscience isn't bothering at all. They're working for the Chinese communists, and it doesn't bother them. They're doing business. It's just, a, it's just a job to them. And the communists are laughing that our people are so gullible right. and so easily enticed with money. Um, I think it's time that we start committees on un-American activities. Yes. I said that earlier this year, and I think it's time that we do it. Um, I'm, I'm really starting to give some serious thought to this, that uh, um, we're going to take on a, a long-term effort to organize in every county of America a local committee on un-American activities where we will investigate, the local committees will investigate the traitors and the communists in their local cities, towns, and counties. And let's start compiling a massive dossier on the communist subversives inside the USA. That sounds like a good project, doesn't it? Yes. On a county-by-county county county level. County-by-county. Name them. Name them. Expose them. Identify them. Um, and And... And link them to others, and, and let's start let's let's start looking at the network that's in every state. Uh, so it's it's a huge project, and uh, it's it's way overdue. Final thing before we uh, we close, I just want to remind you about our trip to Jordan, and there are a few remaining seats on the bus. It's filling up, and. Uh, um, Every day we get more people who are signing up. So uh, the final cutoff is September 22nd. We cannot accept any more names after September 22nd. So we need you to sign up uh, if you want to go to Jordan with Doc and me. The date is right there, November 9th through the 17th. We will depart JFK Airport in New York City on the 9th. Um, the exact time, I don't recall, it's on the website when you go to um, True News and you click the banner and it'll take you to a registration. Um, the itinerary is there and it, it tells you the, 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 the takeoff time. Right. Uh, I want to say it's a late afternoon, mid-afternoon. So you've got to get yourself to JFK. That's the, that's the only thing you got to do. you got to get yourself to JFK. Some of you may have to spend the night uh, fly in the night before on the 8th and then be at the airport on the 9th. I wouldn't risk, if you're coming from a, a long distance to get to JFK, don't don't assume that you can get there on the same day. Right. Flying is no longer um, a guaranteed experience in America. You, you have to you have to allot for um, flight cancellations and all kinds of stuff. But anyhow, the, the, the travel agency that we're working with, they'll help you. They'll, yes. they'll book your flight for you if you need to fly into New York City. And, uh, but we'll all leave together on that flight. Uh, Doc and I, we're all, all going to go on one, uh, one flight to Amman, Jordan. And when we get there, Doc and I, we have people who will be waiting for us there. They will walk you through uh, the visa process you don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about how you're going to talk to anyone and speaking Arabic. It, it's, we've gotten, we have it all taken care of. And then when we leave the airport, there will be a bus waiting for you. We'll all go together to the, air, to the uh, hotel. 
and we'll get you checked in. And then the, the, the next morning, we start our adventure. Yes. And it will be an adventure. You're going to love it. Uh, Doc and I will be there. We'll have breakfast with you every morning. We'll have dinner with you every evening. And we'll be with you throughout the day. We're not going anywhere that you don't go. Right. And we're going to have Bible study every day. It's, this is going to be a really good trip. We're going to go to uh, Mount Nebo, where Moses saw the Holy Land, saw the Promised Land for the first time. Um, we're going to go to Lot's Cave. Um, we're going to go to the baptism site where Jesus was baptized. Um, there's the Red Sea, and there's the beautiful city of Aqaba, Jordan. Uh, there is the oldest church known in the world found in Aqaba. Uh, here's Mount Nebo, where Moses stood on the mountaintop and looked at the promised land. It's quite a sight. Uh, this is Pella, the ancient city where the Christians in Jerusalem fled when the Romans were destroying Jerusalem. They didn't go to Petra. They went to Pella. A lot of people think they went to Petra, but it was Pella. Here's Lot's cave. And um, we'll also see Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, which is uh, in the same area. Here's Petra. This is absolutely amazing. Uh, we're going to spend the night at the hotel at the entrance of Petra. And we will walk the long walk through the, uh, through the rocks to get back to the city of Petra. And we'll be there at night. Here's a nighttime view, and we'll see it lit up at night. Uh, it's quite a scene. Mar Elias, this is where this is where Elijah was taken up into the air when the Lord took him. And there's a church that was built there by the Christians. Here's Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, it's 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 uh, it is quite a sight when you get there. It's like being on Mars, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's you just like look around and go, "What is this? This is it looks like another another, another planet. Another planet. So, yeah. Now we've had a couple of people that have either called our main number uh, here at the office, or you've called our toll-free number that we normally use for folks that uh, contact us and everything asking about the information uh, I would encourage you all the information that you need to know about the trip is at our website it's right at the top of the page there you're going to see uh, the picture uh, join Rick and Doc on but call us call the travel agency there right. there's a phone number in there Doc, for right. the so, travel agency. so call them but you can go directly at from our link it takes you to the registration page we're not doing registrations here at the office right. and our toll-free number is not doing it uh, you know our normal toll-free number they're not taking reservations it's only through the uh, true news website and it takes you to the registration page so that's right we've had a couple people that you yeah. know didn't quite understand that so yeah as and rick said time is limited uh we have until september 22nd to fill things up but the numbers are uh decreasing every day and so we only have a few slots left and so yeah, we'd like for you to be on that trip and we were very fortunate in the prices that we negotiated so your prices $2,950 per person. Most people that I talked to said they expected the price to be between four dollars and $5,000, and that's the average price. But because of COVID, tourism had come to a complete stop. So when we, we organized this just at the nick of time, it was just in the last months of the COVID uh, drought, of tourism in the Middle East. Yes. And so we were able to get the great prices. And it's like as soon as we, we, we got this all worked out, it was like weeks later, suddenly the, the it was like, the it's just like a, a, the doors open and people started going back to the Middle East. And we, we were being told, hey, the airlines don't have any more seats left. The hotels can't get any more hotel rooms because they started filling up for Christmas, November, December. And um, so we got the best prices. And you may never, ever get an opportunity to go to the Holy Land for $2,950 a person. The next trip will probably be in the four to $5,000 range. So take advantage of this and spend uh, those days with Doc and me. And uh, it's going to be a good time to, to bond, to talk, uh, to get to know each other. And... Um, you know, you'll you'll just be able to hang out with us and and talk. I mean, we're going to have a good time. Yes. Um, we're not going to be, uh, you know, riding uh, in 
um, special vehicles and you're on a bus. No, we're all going to travel together. That's, that's what we want to do. We want to be with you. So you got a few more days to get registered. And, and the number of seats, we're limited to the number of seats. Once, once we hit the max, that's it. We cannot get more hotel rooms. We cannot get more airplane seats. All right. So we're flying on Turkish Airlines. It is a fantastic airline. Oh, yes. It is a very, very good airline. They treat airline. you very well. Um, some people have wondered about food. Uh, let me assure you, you're going to love Jordanian food. And some have asked uh, about, uh, well, I, I'm a vegetarian. Can Will I be able to uh, have meal? I was almost a vegetarian on the trip. They can make, and I'm a meat eater. And they so. can, yeah, they, the Jordanians can make you a vegetarian because every meal has a variety of salads. Right. Um, I still remember the first night, the first meal that we had there, and they brought out all this, all this food, you know, the tabula and everything else. And I thought that was the meal. We the thought meal. that was the meal. And it was That's delicious. I, 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 I they were all vegetarian that. dishes. And we were, then they brought the meat out. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I, there's <laughs> more to this. I didn't realize that that was the starter. Yes. So you, you'll love the food. Absolutely. And most of all, you'll love the Jordanian people. They are warm and friendly, and they love Americans. They, they love people coming to visit their country. Uh, they, they will invite you to their home. They, they're just friendly people. And many of them speak English. Uh, you're not going to have any trouble, um, you know, communicating with people. Don't worry about crime. I never gave it a thought there at all. I, I don't think I ever heard a police siren during the entire two weeks I was there. Did you? I don't recall that either. No. There were a lot of police around. Yeah. But they, were, uh, but they you know. It's a small country too, yeah. so. But very, very relaxed, very calm. You know, nice. I hadn't thought about that till just now. I did yeah. not hear. We did. No, it was, it was a just nice, relaxed visit to the country. Uh, you, you're going to like it, and I hope you you make the decision to go. Remember, we won't be here Monday, but we will be back here on Tuesday. Enjoy the holiday. God bless. God bless you.